Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures brought to you by CME Group, where I continue my conversation with Jennifer Suno, who is the Director of Compliance at the NFA, Arthur Bell, CPA and managing member of Bell Tower LLC, and JP Bruns, who is a partner at the law firm Akin Gump. Jennifer, I might want to hear your perspective a little bit on something that that is, you know, very related, but but slightly uh, phrased slightly differently, and that is. So I have interviewed many of the largest managers in the CTA space in the past four years. And what's interesting to me, actually, regardless of size, a lot of them, when I ask them a little bit about sort of what's the opportunities or the dangers you see for the industry as a whole, dare I say, they mention the word regulation <laughs> very often, probably as the number one answer. That'd probably be my number so, one answer too. So. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Good. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you whether you kind of recognize, I mean, we all think it's fair and it's good and, and, and it is, but, but is there a danger that regulation becomes over-regulation, do you think? I, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that, that NFA tries to do is really pay attention to what our members are saying. So, We have advisory committees for each of the different registration categories. So there is a CPO, CTA advisory committee. We have CPO and CTA members on our board and on our executive committee. So we really try and do get a lot of feedback from the industry anytime that we're considering a new rule or a rule change or maybe a new interpretive notice to give more guidance. Um, You know, there are certain areas that I know we have increase the regulatory burden over the years, but we really try and balance that with the um, needs of the customer. So for example, when there were, you know, several large bankruptcies over the past several years with some FCMs, we really took a look and said, how can we get a better handle on seg funds and not just rely on what the firms are reporting to us every day and what we're seeing in our examinations, but also to really have more comfort in the the balances that they're reporting. And, you know, it was it was a lot of work for the firms and a lot of work for the depositories that they um, put their funds with, but we were able to get feeds directly from the banks and the clearing firms and the FCMs that our other FCMs deposit the funds with. And so we know on a daily basis, we can compare what the firm is reporting to us versus what they're actually holding at those depositories. And so, you know, 
while I agree that that's a, a large regulatory burden, the comfort that the industry can have then about seg funds that they didn't have before, I think outweighs that tremendously. And so we do try and do yeah. things like that in, in other areas as well. We recently created a, a new rule for CPOs and CTAs where at the firm level, they're required to report a couple different financial ratios to us on a quarterly basis. And you know we did get some pushback from the members about this additional regulatory reporting. But at the end of the day, we decided that you know we, we didn't want to be in a situation where there were firms that were out there where maybe the firm itself wasn't financially viable and, and we wanted to be able to know you know, would they try and, and for example, you know, commit fraud if they had significant expenses that were out, you know, outside any revenue that right. they were reporting. And so, again, we worked sure. with the CPOs and CTAs, came up with something that we thought was good for them, good for the industry. And I think, you know, again, it's it's something that has benefited the industry overall. Sure, sure. I mean, you, you're almost psychic in the way you kind of lead into my next question because that's exactly the area I wanted to to ask everyone uh, about sort of your 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 views and experience and 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 that is the whole thing about you know you know what are the real risks we're trying to to manage when I think about the industry. Of course, we we hear about the occasional quote unquote blow up at a manager level, and of course, uh, we're in 2018 and February of this year was such a period where there were a couple of managers that lost essentially all the client's assets in a very short space of time. But the big headlines over the years that I've come across are actually from the FCM side because they're the ones holding the money. So that's that's where p- investors can get hurt if, if some of these rules, as you refer to, Jennifer, the SEG rules and so on and so forth. So I'm just, I'm just trying to find out here what the, the three of you think about you know what are the real dangers? What are the real risks that we should try and look for? And 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 what have we learned from these situations? You've always already touched a little bit upon uh, upon this, uh, Jennifer. So maybe Art and JP, uh, you want to start out on 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 some of this. Well, you are right that there's been some very major headline cases involving FCMs. But there's also been, and I asked for Jennifer's opinion on this as well, there's also been a lot of small or managers that have gone under or have been guilty of fraud. Many times they involve a particular group of investors so it may that are somehow associated. So they may all belong to some organization. They may all be of some ethnic group. There's a, there was a problem several years ago involving Asian people that trusted someone of their own background, and it was a fraud. So I do see more than a few frauds involving small managers that are looking to a particular associated connecting or some affinity group that they can build on their confidence in them and and money lost that way. They're typically not big numbers, usually in the, the single digit millions, but there is that risk out there. So investors should be very careful if that is the type of trader that is seeking to get their money. Yeah. And of course, we, and I know that has nothing to do with, or at least I think it has nothing to do really with our industry in terms of regulation, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we we, we can all remember the Madoff issue and, and how a lot of money was, was suddenly uh, gone. The, uh, these yeah. do involve futures managers. 
So, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think one of the things maybe we had touched on due diligence a little bit earlier, one thing that I see with those types of, of frauds, and I think you can even see with Madoff to some extent as well, is that even in just looking at the performance, so we talked about hypothetical performance and kind of the, the pitfalls right. with looking at that and making sure that, you know, you're aware that that's hypothetical and all the implications that go along with it. But even, you know, some of the affinity fraud that I've seen, and again, this is, you know, usually a very small population of the entire future managed futures industry. So I'm not by sure, any means saying that this yeah. is across the board. But I think the the times that we see it where the fraud starts is they're telling the customers the types of returns that they could be getting or that they supposedly have been getting. And all I can mm. say is, you know, the old adage, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> if people really paid attention to, you know, what type of performance they were listing, is it always positive? Are there ever times that you would have negative performance? Is it, you know, these these always consistently very, very high performance? Do they ever, you know, have anything that's even remotely um, in accordance with what the rest of the market is doing? Um, or to look again at, you know, maybe two programs that are both sound similar, but yet they have completely different returns. What would be the reason for that? So really to do due mm. diligence in that type of area is something that I would recommend that customers do. Yeah, that's a great point. JP, do you have anything to add or do you want me to kind of pose, move on to the next topic? Yeah, I think um, just to add to um, you know Jennifer's point of view, you know ex existing managers who are registered with the um, CFTC and members of the NFA now have to report on their you know CTA, PR, CPO, PQR their rates of return, and I assume that um, the NFA, you know, based on feedback I get from clients, the NFA fairly you know actively reviews those filings because many of our clients receive phone calls from the NFA with follow up questions that managers who are reporting smooth or too good performance may in fact move themselves up the chain of being a candidate for an NFA audit. I mean, it's so interesting coming from the, the manager side to hear these things because, of course, we all know that that's exactly what investors want. <laughs> they, they, you know, they want managers to magically take volatile markets and put them through some kind of system, and then it'll come out as a smooth uh, track record. Now, of course, coming from the trend-following industry, we've never been accused of having smooth returns, anyway. So, but it is interesting, and and I think it's a good thing that there are these things in place. Now, I want to go on to something a little bit different, but kind of related as well, because I want to touch uh, and it's a little bit closer to home for for me at least because it it relates to how the industry communicate with the outside world which we've already kind of touched upon in terms of attracting investors and and, and showing performance and i think that we can all agree that education is is really important in order to see the industry continue to to grow and of course our conversation today is meant to be educational but i feel that from a manager's point of view at least that we can at time feel restricted when it comes to educating investors so perhaps i could ask you jennifer if you want to elaborate a little bit on nfa's view on educational initiatives undertaken by managers when it comes to to manage futures as as a whole just sort of the overall feel uh, about these things I think from our perspective, where we see the educational aspects of all of it with our members is in terms of what types of promotion material they put out. So 
even if, yeah. if, if it is more of an educational based thing, if it also seems to be promoting the, the firm itself and its managed futures program, we would consider that promotion material. And that's something that we would look at. We take a different view if it's clear that it's being used to try and educate people about the industry, as opposed to, you know, this is you know, how I trade or, or things along those lines. So right. we do look at it mainly just to make sure that it's that it's balanced. It's not painting an overly rosy picture of how futures works, that it's not, you know, consistently giving nothing but positive returns or, or examples. Sure. But that's really where we yeah. see it mostly from our end is just to make sure that whatever materials you're putting out, even if they're educational, are balanced in what they're trying to tell the the investor. Sure, sure, sure. Now, now, just just continue on a little bit on this, and and of course, there is a, a risk that I'm completely wrong here. So, so I hope you can help me out when it comes to sort of the understanding of what managers can do and can't do. But trying to kind of summarize where where I'm trying to go with this, because as you say, I mean, my understanding is that almost anything a manager puts out into the world is viewed as promotion, and 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 also my understanding is that the NFA kind of warns against providing statements of opinion in promotional material. So, and, and this is where I find it difficult to, to balance, right? Because usually people do want to hear the opinion of, of a manager. So, so maybe Jennifer, just staying with you for, for a little bit. I mean, can you, is, is there some examples perhaps where you can show the difference between, you know, what is and what isn't a statement of opinion? So if, if I could put it like that. Sure. So our um, rules talk about um, allowing for statements of opinion, and we certainly have no problem with that as long as it's clear that it is an opinion and that it has a reasonable okay. basis in fact. So that's really, I think, right. where where most of the members that have problems in this area, where the sticking point is, is that they might put out something that it's an opinion but is it really a reasonable opinion to have? And it, as yeah. long as the answer is yes, that, that that seems like something that that would be reasonable, we are, we aren't going to have any problems with that. And so that's okay. typically how we tend to look at at opinions in in promotion material or other pieces. Okay, yeah, because I mean, one of the things that that I mean, we come across a lot on on the manager side is, of course, that the kind of the key selling point of of managed futures pretty much since 1983, when Dr. Lindner published his research about adding, you know, managed futures to a bond and a stock portfolio that would essentially provide the investors with a higher return as well as lower risk due to the low correlation. So, and and as far as I'm aware, at least, there's never been a white paper to prove otherwise, mm-hmm. so to speak, but. But of course, managers, sometimes they, they would like to use the same approach, but using their own performance data, mm-hmm. right? Because saying, well, if you add us to a portfolio of bonds and stocks, this is what's going to happen. Is, 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 so just for me to be sure I understood what you said, I mean, is, is that kind of okay if you use that because it's based on a fact, it's based on a track record, even if it is kind of a little bit self-promoting uh, in a sense as well? Sure. That, that type of thing is perfectly acceptable. I think if you're going to say things like, you know, this will happen, you know, and, and it, right. to, to make it so that it's, you know, I believe this would happen or to have some kind of couching yeah. there. So or it that may it's, happen. Exactly. Or it's, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So that it's yeah. not, yeah. it's not put in there as a fact, but more clearly so that it is sure. clear that it's, this is what our opinion is. You don't necessarily need to use yeah. those words, but just have something along the lines of that. There's, it's not painted in, as, uh, as a hard fact. Yeah. And of course we have, 
risk disclosures that we we know we should add sure. as well when when we do things like that of course and i mean that's very interesting it's very helpful and i think also it's it's kind of interesting in in some ways just going a little bit off topic here maybe that the it is so different to see what promotions we do in the managed future side but then what's allowed to do on other things where you know financial newsletters people who go on cnbc bloomberg whatever i mean they kind of talk about as you say, this will happen, you know, buy this stock, it's going to be up 300% next year. I mean, it's so different to what they are allowed to do. And I don't know whether it's just, you know, SEC or, you know, where, where the difference is, but there seems to be a lot more, it seems to be a lot more controlled, if I can put it that way, on our side of the fence. Is that a fair statement? You know, it, in terms of what's on CNBC and things like that, I think it probably, you know, compared to how the promotion material that we look at, I would say it probably is more controlled from our standpoint. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, obviously if, if we had members that were going on TV and, and talking about, you know, their opinions about the markets, again, we would expect in order for it to not be misleading that they would make it clear that it's their opinion. Yeah. So we would have the same approach if if we saw uh, you know a TV ad or or uh, an interview on television or something like that. If it was our member, we would take that same approach yeah. that we would with with written materials. Are CTAs just out of curiosity? Are CTAs actually allowed to advertise? I'm not sure. I was sure. I thought it was just the 40 act funds, which are SEC type stuff. Uh, are CTAs allowed to advertise as long as they? Yeah, from from our perspective, there's nothing that prohibits them from advertising on television or radio. We do have a requirement that if the TV or radio ad is going to mention profit projections, that they send that to us ahead of time to review. But otherwise, it's that type of medium is allowed. But is a profit projection anything that relates to what the historical returns have been of the manager? Or is it if someone came out and said, oh, you are going to make, or is there a distinction there? Or is it anything to touch that touches on on your own actual performance? You are perfectly fine talking about past performance and not submitting that to NFA ahead of time. I think most firms, if they do talk about past, they also end up talking about how it can affect future performance. And so right. there, very rarely would we see sure. something that, that mentions one type of performance without also talking about profit projection. <laughs> it's not something we see very sure, sure, often, sure. frankly. So it's, you know, but it does come up from time. But with social media, that's right. I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud here because, you know, obviously the world has changed. It's digital today. So, you know, maybe people don't put an ad in the newspaper, but, but social media, I mean, YouTube videos and whatever you have nowadays, I mean, there is a lot of information out there. And, and that's why I thought, for for our audience, it's it probably is a very relevant and useful discussion to to hear someone like yourself, Jennifer, to to clarify some of these points because I think I think everyone is 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 obviously afraid of doing something wrong, which they should be, but we also need to educate and and that's the balance I think we and and promote in 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 a positive way the all the good things that the managed futures industry does represent I guess yeah Niels I would just um, jump in at, at one one point um, that there is a a significant distinction in the U.S. between advertising for a managed account program um, which if you know the manager is properly registered with the um, CFTC and a member of the NFA they can do versus advertising for a you know collective investment vehicle or a fund which again raises concerns um, with the SEC under the Securities Act because these shares or limited partnership interests and funds are securities. So if a manager 
desires to engage in advertising for a fund, it can now do that under the SEC's Jobs Act rule, as well as you know corresponding rule amendments from the CFTC for 4.7 funds. But at the SEC level, you then have to make a check with the SEC to let them know that you are engaged in general solicitation or advertising for your fund. And not, not many fund managers are willing to do that, rightly or wrongly, because there, is a, there was at least some perception initially that the SEC didn't like this rule, that it was forced upon them by Congress. It was really meant to um, enable small mom and pop businesses to raise some money, not, not be used by hedge funds or commodity pools. But the rule still exists, and some managers do rely on that. Typically, there is a rule of thumb that if a manager, you know, a client of ours is going to be interviewed by the press or you know is going to be on a radio or TV show we typically would not recommend you know we would recommend that they do not mention any funds at all and that they stay away from discussing past um, specific performance of this strategy even but you know managers do appear on shows all the time and um in the, in the media yeah no absolutely appreciate that now in general, I think, you know, thanks for spending a little bit of time on this because this space has long been a misunderstood and, in my opinion, underappreciated asset class. So education is really the best way to overcome these obstacles. But let's move on to some other topics that I have been sort of floating around in the news and I picked up lately. And I know we've already, you know, uh, I think Jennifer already touched upon it just a little bit, but I just want to go back and, and see what else uh, comes up. And, and cybersecurity you mentioned that and and it does spring to my mind you know we've seen firms and we've seen elections being hacked so there's definitely something that uh, can keep people up at night i mean how how do the three of you think about this issue and 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 what what can we do to to help uh, members and participants um avoid this I think from our perspective, and again, you know, touching on the importance of having qualified consultants, again, depending on right. the size of the firm, you may want to consider hiring some type of cybersecurity consultant to help you with um, not just putting together your, your written cybersecurity program, but actually making sure that it's implemented properly. I know that yeah. there was yeah. recently a, an enforcement action that the CFTC took against a firm who had a significant security breach. They had hired a third-party consultant to do their cybersecurity. And unfortunately, that third-party consultant had missed a big hole in the servers, um, the security with the servers. Um, And the CFTC took the opinion that it was the firm's failure to supervise that third-party consultant that resulted in the breach. And they actually ended up finding the firm, I believe it was $100,000. So to really make sure that, you know, you have qualified people that are helping you. From our perspective, we know that, you know, nothing is going to be perfect. We know that things can happen. The programs should be developed in such a way that you understand the risks involved in how you develop the program Mm. and are doing something to assess the risks and determine what's acceptable for your firm. But we do feel it's important to have people who are at least that you're consulting with people that are qualified in this area and not just relying on someone who may be not qualified to to assess your cybersecurity risks. 
Um, it is still so, a very new area for NFA. So, you know, mm. the, the rule just came out a little over a year ago that required firms to have their cybersecurity programs uh, in writing and in place. We have spent that last year on our exams, really looking at it more from an educational aspect. So we have not, for example, taken any actions against firms for not having an adequate um, cybersecurity program. We've also recently hired a person for our compliance department that is a cybersecurity expert so that we can learn more about, you know, now that we've seen these written programs, how do we go about, you know, helping firms and giving more guidance to them to make these uh, these programs themselves more robust? Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's great to hear. Do you want to add anything to 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 this, JP, or, or Art, or um, or are you fine with <laughs> the the very detailed answer? I I think Jennifer's position is best to know what's going on, and I can't add anything to that. <laughs> Maybe you can add something to this. I don't know. We'll see. Staying in cyberspace for a moment. I mean, there's something called cryptocurrencies nowadays, and 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 some of them have even made it onto the world of of futures as our exclusive sponsor uh, uh you know will 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 know so how does the world of of crypto come into to the world uh from your different angles uh so to speak and maybe we should let Jennifer rest her voice a little bit and and hear from you uh, Art and JP about that first and then see what Jennifer thinks about it well, I think um, you know it's clearly with the approval by the CFTC um, in December last year of the CME Bitcoin futures contract, and then also secondarily the CBOE Bitcoin futures contract, there is interest in the CTA space clearly in cryptocurrency futures, um, and I think many managers are also looking at the spot assets. And um, there certainly has been a, a wave of mostly smaller fund managers launching digital asset funds, but some of the larger managers and institutions have gotten into the space as well. So it's you know an area where there's been volatility, there have been rapid price swings, so it's an appealing asset class for many managers. Now the NFA um, you know has sort of already started you know saying to its members, hey, before you trade a a cryptocurrency derivative or spot transaction, you have to notify us. And I think there's also a requirement on the annual financial statements for registered commodity pool operators that they have to tell the NFA if they've traded any derivatives or spot cryptocurrencies in the previous period. So the NFA, I think, is getting in on um, you know, making sure that its members that it knows what its members are doing, which I think is good. The CFTC has taken the position for several years now that cryptocurrencies are commodities and that position has been reaffirmed or affirmed by the U.S. Federal District Court for the Second um, District here in New York earlier this year. So there's a lot of regulatory interest in it. The SEC is very interested in regulating initial coin offerings. So I think we're going to see a lot more regulation as this is a very you know, an area of innovation where there aren't a lot of regulations. And it may be um, regulation by enforcement action initially. True. Um, Anything you want to add here, Art? Or? Yeah, my successor firm has a lot of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, those kind of funds that are startups. Some of those we're a little bit concerned. For First off, some of those we've totally refused to get involved with, not because we saw anything that clearly was a violation, but we just thought that the people 
didn't have the background or the depth or didn't have the right advisors involved. So we, we just did not get involved with them. Others we did get involved with because we felt they were sincere and honest right. and all of those Boy Scout attributes. But nonetheless, they, they are a bit naive. The rules are a bit vague in some areas. And we are concerned about this industry. We expect that there will be uh, some serious blow-ups, that people will lose money, not just on the trading, although they are very volatile, more so than, yeah. than generally was what you see in, in uh, commodity funds. Commodity funds do lose money. They do have streaks of losing money, but you don't get the, normally don't get the, you know, 30% down day uh, that you can very much have with currency. So we're, we're cautiously nervous right. about these funds and what happens, how the regulation and enforcement really play out, what's to be expected. And furthermore, we're concerned that some of the investors really have no idea what they're getting into. They read the headlines, they see the, uh, you know, the, the manager doesn't have to sell it. All they have to do is point them to the newspaper where it shows, you know, these very, very extreme growths in the value of some of them. Uh, and then people want to jump in on it, not realizing what they're really getting into and why that particular fund may be totally unrelated to where the money was made in some other fund or some other just measurement of Bitcoin profitability. So, yeah, there's a lot to be nervous about here. <laughs> Are you nervous, Jennifer? Uh, I think we're all a little nervous about it. What uh, JP was mentioning, you know, reporting out to NFA, whether or not you have firms that are trading in these products, and we do both the spot and the futures contracts for, for uh, cryptocurrencies. And the reason why, as you can imagine, we were so interested in that is to try and just, again, learn more about it. We will have a new interpretive notice coming out soon that will require more disclosures from firms about whether they're trading the cryptocurrency futures or whether they're actually doing the spot or, or allowing customers to, to do spot. From the future standpoint, it's really just more in terms of making sure that, you know, some of these, like the, the extreme volatile swings that, that Art was mentioning, make sure that that type of information is disclosed to clients yeah. From a spot standpoint, our big aspect of it is that we want to make sure that they understand that NFA does not regulate those products, you know, that they're not going to be thinking, oh, they're an NFA member. I don't have to worry about the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm opening up Bitcoin accounts with them. That's not something that NFA regulates. So we just want to make sure that that's clear to the clients. Sure. Uh, that's a great point. Now, we're sort of slowly going to start winding our conversation down, and we've talked quite a lot about some of the burdens and dangers that our industry is exposed to. So I want to turn to a little bit more of an upbeat finish to uh, our conversation, hopefully. I mean, you've all been involved in the industry for a very long time, so I'm interested in finding out what you what you all feel are some of the best things that has happened to the industry, and how do you see this having a positive effect on the growth of managed futures for example you know we have perhaps more institutional participation we have now 40 funds allowing smaller investors to take part i mean what are the highlights in in your opinion as art, art said you know back in the 70s there were very few futures contracts out there mostly agricultural so the innovation you know with which the markets have evolved to the types of products that people can now trade whether it's electricity emissions 
the, you know, the, the opportunities and available products have expanded geometrically, creating all kinds of opportunity sets, whether it's freight shipping. It's been, you know, a very exciting time with new product and innovation. And I think, you know, the Bitcoin and the Bitcoin derivatives just is one more step in that direction of an ever expanding universe of tradable products. Mm. Yeah, true. What about you, Art? What, what, uh, what excites you when you look into the future? What I'm seeing that's the, perhaps the most exciting is that the CTAs, it's hard to find a CTA today that only trades commodities. More and more, they're working in some equity element into what they're doing, trying to transfer their experience with commodities into equities with varying degrees of success, I might add. So that's one thing. As JP said, the expansion of what's traded is phenomenal compared to as recently as five to 10 years ago. So there's much more out there to trade. You know, there's more weather contracts, catastrophe contracts. There's all sorts of things that, that are now available that were not. I think the industry has grown up to it. Right. It's fully matured at this point in terms of people that have been in it. People have been in it for 10, 15, 20 years. They have experience. They've built real organizations. So you can find today a CTA that is structured like a business, run like a business. And we also see CTAs that now are into their second generation. There, right. was a, there was a time 20 years ago, perhaps even 15 years ago, where the typical CTA was some individual who was a star trader. There was, the whole organization was built around one individual who had the trading ability, knowledge, and skill. And those around him were worker bees rather than equally skilled traders. And the systems were not really well documented, systematized, so that a successor could come in. Today, we're seeing firms successfully transferred to new ownership, new, new people involved, and able to survive even after the founder has no longer in the picture. So those, those are big developments. Now, some of those have not been successful. But, um, sure, that, that, that is very true. That those are good points. Jennifer, what, what excites you from, from where you sit when you look at the, the, sort of the, the, the future of the managed futures industry? I think just from, to build on what Art was saying, you know, the fact that there are so many well-established, reputable firms out there from a, you know, from a regulatory perspective really lends a lot of, of uh, reputational integrity to the industry, which I think benefits sure. all of them. So that's the exciting thing that we see on our end, just as it's as it's continued to grow and expand. Sure, sure, sure. I've just got a couple of small points left that I just wanted to touch on because I do think that they are of interest and I would love to hear your opinion about it. Uh, maybe one thing that could make the future of managed futures or, 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 or sort of alternative investments uh, interesting in some respect, and that is my understanding is that the Volcker rule is changing, and and maybe JP, you have some some view or insights as to or maybe art as to what that might mean in in terms of of the industry and 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 how certain organizations now may participate again in this industry. You know, this is probably um, a, an area where. Um, the, the Trump administration wishes wishes to loosen um, certain 
provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act by restri- you know, limiting the restrictions on banks to engage in certain financial activities. So to the extent that large banks could, again, be engaged in sponsorship or of you know, commodity pools or ownership of you know, firms engaged in those businesses in excess of diminished thresholds, I think would be right. useful to the industry to bring you know, a greater asset base to the markets. Sure. Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. F- following up on what JP says, the relief now on the Volca rule is allowing banks, large institutions to take an equity interest in a manager. We are seeing that. We're seeing interest in, interest in that. It has happened with some. Yeah. And this facilitates further growth and research of that manager beyond the capital it has. And it also helps with the transition. I was just talking about second generation ownership. Right, yeah. Having the depth of capital as an investment in the manager or to partially pay to take out the founder are all positive steps. And I'm very pleased to see that because it does illustrate that there is stability, that the funds that have been around, that have been successful, the managers that have been around and successful can continue, albeit with new personnel. Yeah, true. Final point I wanted to touch on, and that is something that I think is interesting because it's attracted a lot of assets. But I think that there is, um, I think there are people on both sides of the fence here in terms of opinions. So I'd love to hear your opinion about it. And that's really the issue about flat fee funds versus funds that charges a, like the old days a management fee and a performance fee. And I, I wonder whether you have any opinion, whether you're worried or not, or you think it's a good thing that we have these flat fee products and 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 certainly they are predominantly happening in the 40x space which attracts uh, money from a very broad range uh, not just from institutional investors and 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 I think one side of the coin in terms of concerns is that these products are often you know they're focusing on raising as much money as possible because it's a flat fee instead of focusing on producing the best possible performance. There's no incentive for actually producing the best possible performance because you get paid the same. And therefore, you, some some managers tend to use kind of a lower quality version of their their strategy um, and then they can raise more money and, and, and mainly trade sort of financial futures rather than the commodities, which are the ones, of course, that provides real diversification. So um, so I don't know who to start out with here, but but I just want to hear your opinion whether you think this is a good development for our industry or something to be concerned about. So Jennifer, why don't I start with you ladies first on this one? <laughs> Thanks. So <laughs> I think you raise an excellent point that would be, you know, NFA's concern is is not so much the change in structure, but just right. how they're then applying that to their trading program. And again, right. how they're disclosing, you know, for example, the conflict of interest that is inherent in having a flat fee versus a performance-based fee where, you know, are they going to be trading less or are they going to not pay as close attention to how the performance is actually doing for uh, a CTA program as opposed to, you know, really trying to do what's best for the, for the customer's account. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Okay. What about uh, you, uh, Art? What what do you see in, in, in this field? Do you have any opinion about it? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, a lot has changed. A lot has changed. Sure. Uh, back in the days, you know, when a, a manager would be lucky and excited to get a 10 or $20 million allocation, now the large traders are looking for significantly more. Uh, a, a large trader will, will 
get a $300 million allocation or more. But what comes with that is a much more sophisticated investor, a investor who's going to insist and negotiate on fees. And what we've seen in the industry is, and it is becoming even more competitive, where they force the fees down. There's a phenomenon going on now that's called the race to zero. And that is where there is no management fee. So the manager is pretty much forced to say, okay, I'll take your $400 million with no management fee, but with a 25 or 30% incentive fee. And that's what they're trading off on that. And we're seeing that for the very large investors. We've, we've seen investments of $500 million, for example, but a zero and something incentive fee. So that is going on even apart from that, getting the fees, which at one point were at four and 20, now then for a long time were two and 20. Now we're seeing one in 20, one in 15 fees, again, based on size. So yes, we wanted to see the larger size accounts, but the larger size accounts are demanding lower fees. As far as flat fees, I don't see the merit in that. I don't know that a trader would necessarily be try to be uh, safer and less performance because, after all, performance is what drives investment. I think the flat fee is market-driven, and the trader is still going to try to do the best that they can because they want performance to attract more capital. Sure. Now, I want to hear your opinion as well, JP, but I just want to interact one thing here uh, just as my own maybe personal contribution on this is that, that of course this, the zero percent management fee is not is not new as such because there are firms including firms that 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 I know very very well that has had that you know fee structure you know for the last you know 44 years where essentially they want to be on the same side as the investor and and only make money when the investor does so on one on one side you can say that's perfectly fair and if you as a business are willing to do that that's fine and you can ch- charge your performance fee my my concern is more and and I'm not so concerned about the institutional investors driving down fees i mean they're perfectly allowed to do so they should be sophisticated enough to you know to see through you know what's good for them in terms of what the net return is and rather than just looking at the total expense ratio which is unfortunately what i think drives a lot of these fee negotiations but but of course i was concerned more for the kind of the 40x space where it's less sophisticated investors that often are involved and and that's why i think maybe as as, as jennifer was saying we do need to be concerned because we we need to protect those investors that they get a good product and and not a a subversion of a product just to raise more assets but at a cheap price. That that's that's just to clarify my my point on that. Anyway, JP, you get the last word on this uh, on this debate. Yeah, so I, I I think two things. One on the flat fee products, um, managers are going to be compelled to put markets into those products that are not capacity constrained so you're going to wind up with a lot of um, you know financial futures where there you know aren't really capacity constraints as opposed to smaller markets in agriculturals or metals or energies and the investor may not be getting the diversification that it thinks it's getting from um, putting money into a commodity pool or a managed futures product I think you know these, these management fee 
based mutual funds are sort of the corollary to ETFs where people can just, you know, buy a sector at a fraction of the cost of buying a more diversified mutual fund. In terms of the, you know, the fees in the industry as a whole, yes, clearly, you know, fees have come down from, you know, a lot over the years. Um, One fee structure that we have seen that has increased in popularity is the one that's being advocated by certain of the consultants being like the one or 30 structure. So that during periods when a manager isn't you know, making money in a year, it still gets paid a management fee so that it can pay its rent and pay its employees so that they don't leave. And that that you know, management fee is you know, later netted out against a future incentive fee so that the manager is never getting more than one or 30 in a given year. So I think that's sort of a nice hybrid for some managers to get you know, a balance of you know, steady management fee income to pay for expenses while still having you know, the potential for a good payday if they make a lot of money. Yeah. No, absolutely. Thank you for that. Now, we've been going on for a long time, so I do want to wrap this up, but I just want to make sure, is there anything you feel that I missed asking you? Anything you are burning to voice at this stage before we wrap up our conversation? I think we've covered a lot of ground, Neil. So. <laughs> yes. Okay, good, good, good. Anyways, on that note, let's wrap up this awesome conversation about managed futures and what goes on behind the scenes of this fascinating industry. Jennifer, Art, and JP, thank you ever so much for sharing your thoughts and opinions on today's topic. I really appreciate your openness during our conversation. It is so important to have practitioners like you share these ideas because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And to our listeners around the world, let me finish by saying that I hope you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in managed futures. From me, Niels Kastorblasen, and our exclusive sponsor, CME Group, Thanks for listening, and I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable. And in the meantime, go check out all the amazing free resources that you can find on cmegroup.com as well as toptradersroundtable.com. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.